a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm the founder and director at Prenatal Yoga Center, and thank you so much for listening to Yoga Birth Babies. And this is our third episode. Super excited to have Claire Friedrich here. So I'm just going to read a little bit about Claire so you guys get a sense of who she is and what she's about. I'm just going to jump in. We're going to talk a lot about childbirth education, childbirth advocacy, her job here at Choice in Childbirth. So let me just tell you guys a little bit about Claire. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Claire for several years now since she did our teacher training at PYC. So Claire is a prenatal yoga instructor at Prenatal Yoga Center in New York City. She's also a Lamaze certified childbirth educator and the program manager at Choice in Childbirth, which is a New York City based nonprofit. And she specializes in teaching individuals with special yoga needs. Claire loves to work with people during exceptional times in their lives. As a certified Hatha and prenatal instructor, she has put to the test everything she has thought she knew about her body while practicing throughout her own pregnancies. So this is her, she's on her second pregnancy right now. Claire holds a Master of Arts and in Health Education from the Teachers College at Columbia University, a Master's of Science and Design Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a Bachelor's Degree in Human Environmental Studies from the University of Missouri-Columbia. She lives in Manhattan with her husband, her four-year-old son, and expecting her second baby very soon in March. So I'm so excited to have Claire here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. So, is there anything I left off your bio that you want us to know about? That was very full. <laughs> I think that covered everything and more. You're like, more than I want to show. <laughs> All right, so let's just jump right in. Can you just share a little bit about your path to becoming a childbirth advocator and an educator? Yeah. I think um, 
You know, I, I talked to a lot of women in my childbirth education classes about where a lot of their assumptions about childbirth come from. And I think a lot of it stems from the stories we get from our own moms and certainly the people around us. And even though my mom had what she would consider very sort of traditional textbook hospital births with an OBGYN, they were all great, pretty easy births, very straightforward, all unmedicated. And, you know, my mom's a hearty Midwesterner who I think had this attitude that it was just no big deal. And so I grew up at least hearing that. And um, when I was in grad school, then I saw the documentary, The Business of Being Born, and was not anywhere near pregnancy, um, not thinking about it a whole lot in my life, but was really moved by the film. And I think that was sort of the intro to midwifery more than anything else for me. Were you thinking of being a midwife? No, (laughs) but it was, it sort of turned me on to the idea of working with a midwife Mm -hmm. as opposed to probably what would have been my other natural path, like just going with an OBGYN because that's where I went for well woman care. So I was intrigued by the idea of Midwives not only working in home birth, but just the, the profession and their the sort of attitude towards birth. So there was that. Then when my husband and I moved to New York City, one of the first things I did was the prenatal yoga training. Yeah, so I think you applied like a, when you were still I started, in Yeah, exactly. So I started it within weeks of moving to the city. Had, of course, been teaching yoga back in, in Madison, Wisconsin, but liked the idea of getting certified in prenatal yoga at you know, I was getting closer to thinking about getting pregnant by that point. So it made sense to do the training at that time. And that's where I met you, of course, but a lot of doulas. And so that turned me on also to the profession of doula work and just became more aware of kind of what was going on in domestic childbirth and a lot of the problems and um, things to, to have to think about. So I finished up the training and became pregnant a month later and then had to start to put all of this together and make decisions for myself. I took a pretty comprehensive childbirth education class with my husband. So we took a Lamaze class at a hospital. uh, And I felt like that was a good complement to everything that I also knew from having observed other childbirth education classes. Um, We had training really thorough. So I had had just come out of the prenatal yoga training. Right. So So I felt like I really was looking for something that was that was at the hospital where we intended to deliver. And I was thinking of it more as a prep class for my husband at that point. I felt a little bit like a know-it-all. <laughs> so we did the class. I enjoyed it. My Lama's teacher encouraged me to think about getting certified because she knew that I was teaching prenatal yoga by that point. And so I did. A year after my son was born, I became a Lama's certified childbirth educator. And at the same time as that happened, I then took a job here at Choices in Childbirth. So initially, I was actually the program manager for that documentary, The Business of Being Born, the classroom edition, which mm-hmm. was for college students. And that's where then it sort of moved from just being excited about maternal health and pretty knowledgeable about maternal health, but then looking at it as more of an advocacy tool, looking at that film as an advocacy tool, looking at this as really a very feminist reproductive justice issue. And I then moved into the program manager role um, for the for choices in childbirth in general, not just for that film. And so it's continued from there, the, the, more of that advocacy work. I think the advocacy work is so important and there's not enough out there. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, in a way it's a growing movement, but there are a lot of limitations to how we can do it. And it is, I mean, childbirth is a huge reproductive issue, reproductive justice issue that I think people don't always recognize mm-hmm. right away. Do you want to expand a little more on your position at Tristan Childbirth and what that, how that helps in the community? Sure, sure. I'm happy to. 
The largest part of my, my job here is coordinating our all about birth workshops. So these are workshops that we run on a monthly basis. They're facilitated by expert childbirth educators. I remember going to one being blown They're away. really good. They're really, really good. They're really good. And there's nothing quite like them um, that we've seen. This this model of having a facilitator who, as I said, is a, is a childbirth educator and a doula. Um, they're all volunteers. They curate these panels of speakers who are very recent moms and oftentimes partners come along and sometimes they bring their babies. So they're, you know, it's within a year of having given childbirth that they're sitting on these panels talking about these inspiring birth experiences. Mm -hmm. And I, I emphasize the word curate because we're very conscious of exploring a lot of different options. It's not at all meant to exclude certain types of childbirth or make it seem like there's one best way to give birth. And that's what I love. Actually, I remember going to the VBAC one Mm -hmm. and I love that you had a home birth midwife and you had an OB. And I think that gave a lot of credibility to it. Right. Because I know when we talked about doing it at PYC, I think if we just had a home birth midwife, a lot of people would tune out and be like, oh, home birth, I'm not doing that. Right. But to have an OB on the panel, I think people are like, oh, let's hear what this OB has to say. I think for a lot of women, and they come at varying times in their pregnancies, um, I would say, you know, the vast majority are probably into their third trimester, maybe second trimester. Most people are not coming any earlier than that, that we would love for them to. But these workshops kind of plant the seed. They help alleviate fears. They inspire. But they also plant the seed because maybe the first time around, they're not thinking about home birth or they're not ready to explore a midwife or they've ruled out whatever number of reasons, you know. And then... And then they have an experience that really shapes the second experience, and they have this memory of the workshops. They have a memory of meeting a a really personable midwife or Mm -hmm. OBGYN or doula and go on to work with them. And we've had lots of examples of that happening where someone hired their doula or they hired the childbirth educator based on something that they saw. We're also getting positive, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning with the way you grew up with stories of birth. They're hearing positive birth stories, which I think is... um, not nearly as abundant as it should it's be. Because, the opposite. Yeah, you know, right. it's quite the opposite. I feel right. like people are actually telling their negative, scary birth stories. One, I think they're processing it, and so mm-hmm. it's kind of getting out there. And then two, you know, media emphasizes it. And so, and I think that's what a lot of people get stuck in their mind, these horrible birth stories, when in fact we need to go the other way and talk about the positive ones. So I think by showing those positive birth stories and having the moms themselves explain, you know, even though... I remember the one at the VBAC one, it didn't go necessarily the way she wanted. She didn't mm-hmm. have a VBAC, but she definitely seemed to have a sense of being empowered from being part of the choice-making experience as opposed to just having the birth happen around her. Yeah. I think it's so important to validate that the women walk away from these birth experiences with a lot of their own feelings. And it's not just that everything ended up okay and mom and baby both went home healthy and fine. That's, that's the obvious. That's mm-hmm. what everybody expects. And it's what happens. For. It's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but to validate the fact that someone wasn't thrilled with their experience or the opposite, that they had this amazing experience and then to put them in a space where they get to share that it's, um, even for the best of experiences, we've had a lot of speakers come back from the panels and say it was a really healing process for them to get to talk through. And I think in particular with that VBAC workshop. Yeah. So it's a workshop, um, presenting, you know, some of the risks and realities associated with a vaginal birth after cesarean, but also talking about secondary cesareans, ways to prevent primary cesareans. So there's a lot of things that we cover in that. And, and that's, we have to, because it's a reality. It's a reality. A third of women are having primary, uh, not primary, 
but having cesareans in, in their country. Experience, yeah. And VBAC is, um, can be a huge challenge depending on where you live, what region of the country you live in, which hospital you're delivering in. So to get to hear those stories means a lot to the people. Yeah, I've who, worked with a lot of the women that feel like, can I even do a VBAC? Is it even appropriate for me to do it? And so yeah. I was really glad you guys do that workshop and all the workshops you do. Again, just putting a sense of positive experience towards birth. I think the majority of women don't see it that way. In fact, um, a week or so ago, I asked in class, you know, because I want to talk about the way media paints a picture. I said, you know, what do you guys think of when you think of birth? And one woman just yelled out, horrible. And I'm like, oh, well, let's talk about that. Right, validating. <laughs> yeah, yeah so again, a lot of it is also holding the space and container for women and validating what they think, but then saying, well, let's look at why we think it's horrible. Is there any way that we can look at, you know, possible being an empowering experience? And a lot of women don't even think, can birth be empowering? Right. And it certainly can. Or pleasant. Or pleasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole idea of orgasmic birth. I've actually seen a few women as a doula, but I really think they went on a very orgasmic trip. My friend Liz called it the closest thing to an LSD trip she ever had without, without drugs. <laughs> the hormones are real. The hormones are certainly real. We know I know that Choice in Childbirth has recently released a report overdue Medicaid and private insurance coverage of doula care to strengthen maternal and infant health. So I would love to hear a little more about that. Sure. Uh, this brief that just came out in January was a, a joint effort of Choices in Childbirth and Childbirth Connection, which is now a program of the National Partnership for Women and Families. And uh, in a way, for Choices in Childbirth, this was a big follow-up piece to an earlier report that launched in 2014 that was specific to doula care in New York City. And it was looking at women's access to doula care, um, women's assumptions about doula care, certainly providers' attitudes towards doula care, and looking at um, how it would address um, a number of different issues, including cost savings and um, lowering unnecessary intervention rates, those kinds of things. So this um, this brief overdue, which just, again, came out last month, highlights some of those specific things that doulas can offer for women. So all the interventions that they can um, help to lower, including epidural rates, um, less use of Pitocin, uh, 28% fewer cesareans, just to highlight that one. That's one that comes up a lot. Um, and think about the savings, just the savings so, from private insurance and Medicaid. That's and that's, that's the, that's the big um, piece that came out of this was that when you look at the, the cost savings associated with lowering all those interventions, and we know from medical literature, all of this is, is true. Um, that if you can incentivize somehow both Medicaid and private insurance companies to reimburse for doula care, or cover doula care flat out, it's going to have a huge impact on the health economy. And, and also really empower women, leading them to have much more powerful birth experiences. And as we talked about already, like the influence of negative thoughts about birth, you know, if women come out having better experience, more empowered experiences, it's the trickle down effect. It's huge. Right. Right. So, um, and this was great. I mean, it's a, it's a shorter brief than our doula care in New York city report was, which was like an 80 page document. <laughs> um, but there's a great, uh, infographic and all of this is available on the choices in childbirth website, but it's, um, I think just a, a very helpful kind of reminder of why doula care is, has, can have such an impact. And, you know, in 2014, um, 
ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine came out with their joint issue of recommendations to try to reduce unnecessary cesarean sections. And one of the big things that was highlighted was how doulas are one of the most effective ways of reducing a lot of interventions that could potentially lead to cesareans. And they acknowledged that it's a very underutilized service. So only about five or 6% of women in the United States are using doulas. And there's some variability in whether they're trained doulas or whether they had a sister or a cousin who is just sort of working in that function, but not necessarily certified or, or having trained as a doula. And um, so that's a problem because if if we know what kinds of success traits they can have in, in lowering those unnecessary cesareans and inductions and all sorts of other things, but then we know that so many women who are receiving Medicaid can't access doula care. Well, it's a cost. It's a huge issue. So it's I think that issue. what you guys are saying and proposing is that Medicaid provides doula services. Right. I mean... I think one of the biggest things that I run into at the studio, and even when I was an active doula, about people concerned about the cost. And I know some, my friend um, started to do a doula program that the hospital provided her. So she basically did her shift, and she was the doula, and I think there are a few others. And when someone came in and they wanted one, she basically met the couple there and then mm-hmm. with their support. There's a lot of There's a lot of pretty innovative ways of doing it. Of course, we have you know private doulas who are working... With, with all women, and many of them work on sliding scales. There are hospital-based programs like the one that you're describing. You know, there are some critiques of that, that, that it's not continuous emotional support necessarily. If their shift ends and they right. leave and someone new is coming in, it disrupts that, that labor pattern they're potentially. they're continuous for that amount of time, as like, unlike a nurse who's coming right. in now. And they're getting, they're getting support, which is key. I mean, yeah. that's the bottom line. Um, there are some really innovative community-based programs, too, where doulas are working pretty exclusively with low-income women, in particular zip codes, or, you know, it depends on how it's defined in different areas. But, um, you know, the Department of Health in some cities might then have a program that, that allows for those doulas to be paid, but the women who are essentially hiring or electing to work with the doulas are not paying anything. And that has... I mean, that's a model that we would love to see grow and expand. And it's happening here in New York. It's happening in other cities, but not to the extent that we would love to see it. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Yeah, it's crazy that, you know, I love that ACOG is supporting doulas. I feel like when I was really in the doula world, for the most part, the doctors I met were really happy to have a doula. I think I've only run into one doctor that we didn't really work well together. She really, 
I'm not actually sure why, yeah. but I think it's an important thing to be able to offer. And I like the doctors are supporting it. It's interesting. There was an article, I think it was in Slate magazine. I talked, yeah. I wrote a blog about this. I called it defending the doula where a lot of people perceive the doula as kind of a know-it-all and, um, interrupting the medical care opposed to intervention. Yeah. And I think that's Mm -hmm. misrepresenting it. I mean, I'm sure there are some doulas out there that are that way. I don't personally support that. I think that the doula's job is to hear what the, what her client wants, try to advocate for that. But the doula is not medically trained. And so she should not be getting in the way. Um, But I do think, some people are hesitant to use a doula because they have that image of like this crunchy girl, little person's going to throw herself on top of the mom and be like, you cannot do medical intervention. And so I think we, you know, along with changing the idea that birth can be enjoyable, empowering, the doula is an advocate, but not an advocate that's going to be uh, troublesome. So right. I think a lot of people think that way. Yeah. There's absolutely a code of ethics with which they're expected to work within and, um, the moment they start to create friction in a hospital system a with a particular moment. practice, they're doing a lot of harm to the profession. And it, and it is a profession that is, you know, it has substantial medical evidence behind it. So I, it's hard for me to understand why doulas want to, why anyone would want to ruin a good thing. I know. I don't, because as a donor certified doula, it's very clear that we are not meant to make any medical decision. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, put this out there. I even, I do carry a thermometer in my doula bag and I know technically I'm not allowed to, but I can't tell you how many times I was sent out to Dwayne Reed in the middle of the night to get a thermometer. And so I'm like, it's there. You can grab it if you need. Cause if the woman's water breaks and the care provider saying you can stay at home, but it just makes sure you don't have a fever, you know? Right. And so those are the times they're like, we're going to have a thermometer to go get one. So now I carry one, but even carrying a thermometer is against the code of ethics because it's starting to work into the medical. Oh. And so it really, um, it saddens me that some doulas are being bad apples and, and souring the water for yeah. so many people and then creating this image that maybe someone doesn't want to help them. You know, the doula shouldn't help them because they think it's there about themselves. So, yeah. Fortunately, I think that the, those are rarities and the vast majority of, of trained and, and even untrained doulas are really there to support the woman. Absolutely. Cause it's a career you don't go into for really, I can't right. imagine why <laughs> for, selfish putting reasons. That for selfish reasons, because right. it's really a selfless act. You're with that woman and you're, I think it's a beautiful career. It's challenging, but of course it does make me sad that some women are, are spoiling the water for that. All right. So let's get back to some of the questions I had. So what are some of the changes that you want to see in the healthcare system in terms of maternity care? Well, I think doula coverage is a, is a huge area. We obviously don't need to expand on it much more than that. But I think that is a, a very doable thing that's starting to happen. So there are a couple states right now where reimbursement is happening. Oregon and, and Minnesota. Uh, New York's working very hard towards getting to that point, And I think they'll continue to serve as models for, for other places. Um, to go super lofty, I mean, universal health care <laughs> would for me be a, an area of, of concern for maternity care um, and for, for infant safety and health as well. But then I think for me, and, and this has become probably the biggest part of the, the advocacy work that I do as a childbirth educator working here, um, even in, in one-on-one conversations with women who are sort of in that reproductive age, is um, just more exposure to the midwifery model of care and really placing that center stage. As even an option. I think some people don't even know what it is. As an option. So I think that, you know, the the attitudes towards midwives in the United States have unfortunately put a lot of restrictions on certain things. Um, you know, about 
9% of women right now in the United States are working with midwives for their prenatal care. And that is quite counter to countries where we have much better maternity care services and, and, much and rates, rates of midwives, much higher rates. And, you know, the UK and their national health um, standards language, they say all women need a midwife and some midwife, some women need OBGYNs or doctors as well. And if that attitude were a little bit more pervasive in the United States, I think we would have much better statistics. I can't, you can't convince all women to work with midwives and, and only working with a midwife is not always appropriate. If a woman has certain yeah, she's high risks, risk. then that's maybe not, you know, I the only I actually provider. think a lot of people don't know what a midwife is. Cause I know that when I would tell like a new group of people, I'm a doula, they're like, Oh, so you're a midwife. I'm like, right. There's a lot of confusion around whether they're trained medical professionals, um, whether these are just sort of these, yeah, you know, there's, there are of course then different types of midwives right. too. And there's right. no Entering clarity for, for the average American, nurse. right. Certified nurse midwives, certified professional midwives, lay midwives. We have certified midwives here in New York. Um, some can work in hospitals, some can do home birth, home births, not always legal in all States. So there's a lot of crazy. issues there. And so I think if there was more clarity around what a midwife could do, there would be a lot more empowerment to, to certainly choose midwives and probably better reimbursement as well, because that's a big issue now. Midwives are not being, um, they're not being reimbursed at the same rate as OBs when they're doing virtually the same services. So that's meaning that midwives who work in private practices and who, who work in home birth with private practices simply can't afford for their own practice to take on low income women because they're not going to be reimbursed and these women can't afford to pay for their services. Mm -hmm. So there's some big disparities there. Um, back to, to home birth, while this is only about 1% of the population having home birth, mm -hmm. um, certainly I think if, if midwives were reimbursed differently, or if there was just better coverage for them, probably that rate would be slightly higher than it is right now. I think that that's part of it. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's part of it. I think it's partly fear and misunderstanding. Although I, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought here in New York that, home birth midwives have to get covered because I know I was out of network with Stacy, my midwife, and there was some loophole right. that she was then considered in network because it was a home birth and she got paid. And I was, I was actually surprised. She only got, I think she got a sliding scale of like 10 to 12,000 for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know he gets a lot more, but I thought there's something that here in New York state, Home birth midwives are covered. There are, there are loopholes, and unfortunately, it's really hard to keep tabs on because it changes from year to year sometimes. Mm -hmm. To some extent, what you're saying is true. Um, however, it depends a little bit on what type of insurance you have. Okay. So if you have employer-based insurance, then that may be the case. But there are other types of insurances that Medicaid, then have Medicare. loopholes where um, they, they may not cover or they may cover at an out-of-network uh, rate, but you're responsible for making up the rest of it. And so it's true that midwives work with sliding scales and oftentimes can accommodate whatever a family's needs are, but it's not quite that simple that the state has mandated something and that all women okay. so I was lucky. get, yeah, you were, you were lucky. And I think probably even in the last couple of years, it's changed enough that, that it's made a big difference. But yeah, I mean, home birth, home birth is a big issue that it's, it's not legal in, in many States. And that, has meant that, you know, 
obviously women are, are having home births still in these states where it's illegal and they're having either they're working illegally with midwives or they're having unassisted home birth, which I'm not. I mean, I'm not afraid to say I'm not an advocate for. I will stand up and say that I'm not the most supportive of that either, because that that's where things get scary to me. It's like, right? I feel that as natural as the body knows how to birth, there can be things that can go wrong. And to have a trained professional that is ready to help, I think you know. I'm going to just go out there and say I think you're putting a lot of faith in just the way your body should release your baby and it may not work that way. It doesn't always. There are, there are realities and, and risks. Um, the other issue with, with our attitude towards midwives just in general is that if women do choose to work in an out of hospital birthing center or they're working and having a home birth and they do require transfer to a hospital, midwives often don't have home birth. Midwives often don't have privileges to work in that hospital. Right. So again, there's this disjointed care, a lack of continuity they're often treated as prize for showing up in a hospital after what ho- hospitals or doctors may perceive as, you know, a botched, botched birth. birth yeah. right? So they're then blamed for making this risky decision and it just doesn't end well. It really disempowers women and, um, it, you know, they're, it's, it's an unfortunate thing that leading to poorer treatment of women than the opposite than what's yeah, I know when, um, St. Vincent's closed here in New York City. That changed the scheme of home birth as well because the home birth midwives were allowed to go there and and still have some privilege, and now it's gone. Yeah, there there are no hospitals in New York City where home birth midwives have privileges anymore, and that is a shame. Yeah, it's pretty tricky. I mean, I was in a really fortunate position that my OB, and I'll keep his name quiet, um, really stepped up and said, you know, should something happen, he would come in mm-hmm. and be my OB. And we kind of kept it under wraps that um, if I had to show up, he was going to claim I was his patient the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that I felt very lucky. And he and my midwife were in conversation during my whole birth. So he knew like what was going on. But it's lucky, but how it was, funny that it's this clandestine thing that it that it should be something that you have to keep under wraps. I do because if yeah. I say who it was, you know, I don't want him to get any slack. Right. And I felt really fortunate to have that, but I don't want women to think home birth and like, what if I have to go in? You know, because that's a reality. You might have to, sure. and then to be treated poorly and like, oh, you foolish woman for trying this. Right. It'd be nice if there was more of a cohesive program where. If a woman showed up from trying a home birth at home and, you know, some, whatever reason she had to go in, that they welcomed her and they're like, okay, let's see, let's pick up and see where we can go. Right. Instead of like, you silly woman for trying this. Yeah. yeah. So many transfers are not true emergencies and, and shouldn't be because midwives are, if they're working in home birth, they're trained to, to catch things before they become an emergency. And right. it may just be something as simple as needing a little Pitocin or... You know, maybe they, maybe a woman needs an epidural to relax a little bit, and it's it's a medical intervention certainly, and it needs to take place in a hospital. But a midwife could very well be overseeing the, the continuity of care there that's happening. It's not like an OBGYN is, is placing an epidural. Yeah. Anyways, it's, it's an anesthesiologist. So it's very and, true. And there's there's you know so this is a big focus on home birth, but that's again it's a slice of the population. The vast majority of certified nurse midwives are obviously working in hospitals and in in hospital birthing centers. And, um, New York city is a place where there are a lot of midwife practices and hospitals, fortunately. And a lot of them have really collaborative practices with OBGYNs. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has its, I mean, in some ways it has its drawbacks because midwives working in hospitals may feel a little bit restricted by hospital policies, 
But at the same time, it allows women to feel like they have this, you know, huge range of care. If something should happen, they've got the medical expertise of a surgeon. Mm -hmm. And in general, for a low risk woman, who's probably not going to need to face those sorts of things happening, then they have great midwives working with them. So it's, I'd like to see more of that. confidence is different. I've worked with clients that have had midwives in the hospital and, you know, there's always backup OBs. And I think just the woman's confidence with what her body can do, because the midwife, the midwifery care model is different than the obstetric and the care that the mom is receiving during her whole pregnancy and through the labor, I just see it as more, let me go out again and say like more nurturing and a little more one-on-one and should things turn, which I've seen happen too, then the OB comes in, but the woman up to that point, I get the sense that she's really been like, okay, things have turned. I trust my midwife. Let's see what the doctor has to say. So I think it's the whole midwifery model and support that the mom gets is, is different. It's a lot more one-on-one. So I think, should she have to change gears and have an OB step in? I don't feel like those women are usually as traumatized by the experience if things deviate. Yeah, because they feel like they were. Yeah, it's more collaborative. They feel like they were really listened to and seen during the whole birth. So, I really do support the midwives. So, I want to ask a little bit about. So, I know obviously we believe in educating women is the first step to improving maternal health. So, and besides, we talked a little about home birth, but are there other areas you feel women are not seeing the full picture about the care they're getting? Definitely. We know from the Listening to Mothers 3 survey, which is a national survey of women's experiences in the United States, and the last one came out in 2013, we know that about half of women are attending some childbirth education classes during their pregnancy. We also know, I mean, there's a breakdown of what, how comprehensive those childbirth education classes are. You know, that you have everything from Bradley Method classes and Lamaze classes, which could be 12 to 24 hours of childbirth education. You have weekend intensives, you have one-day offerings that are sometimes offered by hospitals or even by specific practices. And what we know is, um, based on, again, these women's experiences, those shorter, more intensive classes that are offered on a day or for a few hours tend to focus much less on the normal process of labor, more woman-directed coping mechanisms, um, advocacy, empowerment, and they focus much more on the hospital policies and really what to expect with a hospital birth. And so that alone is is showing us that there's a limitation to what women are seeing when you talk about the full picture. So I think that's something that, you know, unfortunately we're seeing a drop in women's attendance to these childbirth education classes instead of the opposite happening. So I'd like to see more of that. Um, you were talking about you know, the experience with working with midwives versus an OB. And I don't mean to put them in these two completely different camps because there are always going to be exceptions to this. But in general, when women are working with midwives, those midwifery practices tend to take fewer patients. And so you have more time to work with them. The, the actual prenatal appointments may last a half an hour to an hour with home birth midwives, maybe significantly more than that. The average appointment with an OBGYN for a prenatal appointment is between five and six minutes the time that they actually spend with the OB. So they may spend more time in the office. They very well will, but they'll be with a nurse who takes a lot of the vitals and gets their blood pressure. And they'll spend a lot of time in the waiting room. But the actual appointment with an OB is five to six minutes. So there's no way they could get the full picture in that amount of time. Or their questions answered. Or their questions answered. So part of this is in the time that they spend with their OB, 
they're given sort of this list of the expected tests and ultrasounds or scans that they'll be expected to go through. And these are just routine. And I'm absolutely in favor of, of testing being done if it's needed. And there are some routine tests that are, that are pretty evidence-based. You know, the 12-week or the 20-week scan are fairly evidence-based ultrasounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like a 37-week fetal growth scan is actually not evidence-based for the average low-risk woman. Vaginal exams. Oh my And the God. number of vaginal exams being done. And women... It does not give any information as to when labor is going right. to start. Women are not ever well, rarely told that there are alternatives that they could say, out. I just don't want to do the test. I just had this experience with my, my second pregnancy where between the 12 week and 20 week anatomy scans, the hospital has now started to push for it's a 16 week. And I questioned it a little bit. I was pleasant about it, but I, I just opted out of it. And when I told my midwives, you know, there was a little bit of a, a roll of the eyes. That this is this new thing. And there's not a whole lot of evidence to support that it's a great idea because they're not going to get a clear picture. They're going to have you come in four weeks later anyways and get the same. I, I end up having it. So they're, they basically said because of my advanced maternal age, you know, being over 35, mm-hmm. they really supported that. And, you know, I wanted to dig my heels in, but I started to feel really badgered. And so I finally said, okay, if we do the 16, do we have to do the 20? They said, probably not. And I said, okay, let's just do the 16. They said, and then they found placenta previa and I was devastated which even though it's 16 it's 16 weeks i knew right i mean but my more my maternal mind i'm like oh no of course course, my logical what it could lead to right potentially and so for that whole month and i'm like what can i teach what can i do that whole month i was very anxious and then i do my 20 week scan like oh my gosh your placenta is lifted it's anterior but it's lifted you're far away Mm -hmm. but the anxiety that created right and i'm educated in this was quite great so can imagine some of the seeds that are planted for women at 16 of like what could go wrong. Right. So it's, you know, it's strengthening this idea that women are patients. And although perhaps the alternative of that is to think of ourselves as consumers. And I, I have political reasons for thinking that it's not such a good idea to be thinking of ourselves in consumer terms because birth is not something to consume. It's a right. Yeah. But when you keep using that word patient, we have very clear ideas of what patient and provider means. And patient tends to imply that we have less power. I mean, there's a, there's a power dynamic there where the provider knows everything and to even ask questions is sometimes something that people balk at. So, and then if you're only given five or six minutes, you don't have time for those questions anyways. So yeah, I think that there are lots of places we can point to with why women are not getting a full picture. And if they've taken a pretty good childbirth education class at all, it's happening in the last few weeks of their pregnancy. It's where they're introduced to concepts like birth plan or a list of birth preferences. And in my mind, that's really too late to be developing something like that. A birth plan is a document that should be started as early in the pregnancy, even preconception and follow through the care so that there's just, you're, you're minimizing any negative surprises at the end. You know all throughout where your provider stands on things, where your hospital policies stand on certain things, and where you yourself stand on certain things. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I recently started changing my language about birth plans and thinking more again, birth preferences, but going even further back, like what you were just mentioning, the preconception, you know, for the mom to start to educate, you know, the, the mom to maybe be, you know, I'm pregnant yet, educate herself about birth. Because a lot of women don't know anything until, as you mentioned, third trimester and interview who they want to be their supporter. Who do they want to be either their midwife or OB so that when they choose that person, there's not as much negotiation. They already know who this person is and how they practice. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to have as much of a plan because they know, like, um, you know, I'm just going to spout out, uh, like, Village OBGYN. We know who, you know, we know Dr. Wood and what she stands for. And so if you went with someone like her, you don't have to say, I really don't want to be induced because you know they believe in not doing that. Right. So if we start early enough, you don't have to go into this document because you enlisted the help of someone that already has the same philosophy. Right. I just don't think that's happening. I think too many women are sticking with either a recommendation or who they had for their well woman care and just hoping that they're like, I like this person. I hope it works out. Yeah. So I think we could, yeah, go back to way earlier. As early on as possible. Choices in Childbirth does a workshop on choosing your care provider in birth setting. And it is intended for audiences of, of women and their partners who are a little bit earlier in their pregnancy. But the bottom line is communicating to the, no matter where you are in your pregnancy, you always do have the right to change providers. You're going to be very limited. You're going to be very limited. Insurance is a big part of that. We frequently recommend women consider going out to New Jersey because they may have options there that no longer exist in the city. Um, But we, we always spotlight panelists who have made pretty striking you know, changes at 40 weeks plus. I've had a few clients um, through the studio and as a doula that have changed, but it's really like only maybe two that pop up and one in particular and a wonderful OB here, but she doesn't take insurance. Right. But she'll take very late um, transfers. Right. And I talked to my own doctor and he said, really, it's after 23. And when I started pushing him on that, he said, you know, it's really the insurance. It's the insurance money. for It's the insurance. It's also if, if women... For example, I turn on to the midwifery model of care and say, great, I'm going to work with a midwife instead. There are so few practices now where you even can get a spot if you're beyond 10 weeks pregnant. That's before some women know they're pregnant. Yeah. And now they're calling around and being told they're not taking any more clients for these months because they're booked. So it's virtually more midwives too. We need more midwives. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh, well, I'm all supportive of that. So do you have any tips for women who have chosen a hospital birth setting, just that they're feeling overwhelmed by the whole maternity system? Like how can they, what can they do besides educate themselves to try to have a, a good hospital birth? I guess education is the foundation. That's the foundation that, that's going to lead you towards a good provider. Fortunately, it's very possible to have a great birth experience in a hospital. And I mean, I say fortunate because 99% of women are, are having there. births <laughs> in hospitals. Um, yeah, starting early with education, you know, watching documentaries, there's no shortage of great books out there, mm-hmm. blogs, websites, that's going to lead you Podcast. towards podcasts, <laughs> hint, hint. it's going to lead you towards a much more supportive provider. Um, 
in terms of the things that you can, can change in your environment, I think touring the hospital and getting a sense of the layout and then understanding that, you know, you can dim the lights, you can pull the curtains or close the doors, you can bring in music, you can bring in a doula, you can do a lot of things to adapt to whatever kind of environment you need. Again, I think hiring a doula is a big, big thing. Uh, I absolutely am in support of doulas supporting moms in any kind of setting, but I think they're particularly important in a way for hospitals to, you know, they're not, they're not a shield. They're not a direct, to, to use the word advocate is a little bit tricky. They're not ever going to speak for a woman, but they can, again, plant seeds, they can help formulate questions for a mom and sort of act as an interpreter for information so that mom feels clear and slow things down. Just create that pause that sometimes is all that's needed. That's what I found was really helpful. Sometimes I could see the information, the care provider was giving the information, but I could see the mom's eyes start to glaze over. Right. She's not in a state to, and so we could pause and say, you know, did you understand this? Did you have any questions or do you want to take a moment to let that kind of marinate? And Mm -hmm. that pause can really, I think, help the mom, understand the situation so that she doesn't feel pressured to make a decision right there or then. Right. There are, you know, hospitals can be very chaotic, stressful environments, obviously too. And, um, partners supporting women during birth can get really burnt out in that kind of experience too. And so for, to have a doula there present to support the partner is something that I think a lot of times is underestimated and underappreciated. My husband hands down was about getting a doula and I was a doula. And I think actually the doula, especially the second time, I think it was more for my husband because he then had, he could be a support and yet he didn't feel the responsibility. And I know that, gosh, the look in so many eyes of the husbands when I'd walk in or the partners, when I'd walk in the door Again, I didn't relief. have a magic wand, but there was relief. And I yeah. would tell them, like, I don't have a magic wand. I can't make it go how necessarily you want, but I can just be your support and give you information. But, yeah, the husbands and partners were just like, all right, the pressure's off. I can be a support without having to hold be a all good the information. Because it's a lot of yeah. pressure on a partner yeah. to all of a sudden interpret the emotional signposts of labor and then be able to pull out the tactics to help when they may have never done this or maybe went through once or twice. That's, that's asking a lot. Yeah. I mean, some partners are amazing at it, but for the most part, um, you know, does it ever help? Does it ever hurt to have support? I don't think, I don't think so. Yeah, good support is good support. And then on a personal note, so now having been in the childbirth education world, and now you're also on your second, are you approaching anything differently this time than you did with your son? On the home stretch to the second, <laughs> I feel pretty confident that I made a lot of really good decisions for, for myself with the first time around. We worked with um, care providers who I trusted throughout. I felt really pretty pretty good about, you know, the, the realities. I knew that there were certain limitations to the hospital where I was delivering, but I overall felt pretty good about it. Um, we hired a doula the first time around. We took childbirth education. I feel like all of my sort of checklist items were checked off. Um I did make a few changes though this time. I worked the first time around with a group of midwives that was a larger practice and so I rotated through their care. They were all great but I never got to know any of them individually very well and I never felt really that they knew me and my husband individually. And you know I I had a good experience but I was looking for a little bit more intimacy. I was looking for midwives, a smaller practice of midwives this second time around who as selfish as it may sound, would care 
about giving me a very Claire centric birth experience. That was something I knew I deserved. I think every woman deserves. And so I kind of prioritized that a little bit more. And I found a practice of two midwives that I also alternate through. I mean, I see them them. on alternating (laughs) appointments, but I've gotten to know them. I feel very comfortable emailing, texting. We joke, we have a friendship. It's more of a relationship than I ever had the first time around. Um, they've gotten to know my husband, my son, they would like for my doula to come a few weeks before the due date so that they can meet the doula in advance. Um, It's a real team. It's It's a real team. Yeah. So there's a lot of support there. And again, we've, we've, as I said, we've hired a doula. And then I think just a few things that were more a result of actually a a medical condition that came up with the first Mm -hmm. pregnancy called cholestasis that, um, led to me being induced a couple weeks early the first time around. And I felt very you know, validated in that. It seemed like truly something that needed to be done medically. It did change my mindset in terms of some of the steps that I could do to try to prevent that, knowing that there's a good chance that it could recur with the second pregnancy. Um, I started a lot more holistic measures earlier on. So I started with acupuncture more regularly from about 11 weeks on. I've been going um, bi-monthly for acupuncture, now even more recent or more, more regularly in the third trimester. Uh, I made certain dietary changes. I started taking supplements. I just feel like I was a little bit ahead of my own care. It was more self-directed care, working always with my midwives to make sure that it made sense. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's put a little bit more of the, the responsibility and the, the care in my hands, which feels a little bit different than the first time around. What week did you find out that you had the cholestasis? It was late. It was right around where I am right now. So not that one. <laughs> I was about 33 weeks and it's typically not something that shows up until the third trimester. Okay. So, you know, there's no way of knowing until I give, give birth again to see if this hits again, but I feel really good about, you know, if it happens, I've done everything I feel like I could have done to try to offset it or prevent it. Right. And sometimes it just happens. I've also, that's prompted, you know, I've taught yoga and practiced prenatal yoga the first time, but I've been a little bit more driven or focused to spend even more time this second pregnancy going regularly, continuing to teach until the end. But, um, it's kind of, I don't feel as glowy or as bouncy the second time around. Well, I think, I don't think most women do. No, I you think, have another child you're taking yeah, care I of. Think you that's have life happening around you. So <laughs> to carve out a few hours each week where, I just get to focus on what's good in my body. I get to focus on what I can do. Yeah. Because the first time it's so new for you and and it's like, Oh my God, I'm pregnant. And the second time, like I'm so pregnant and yet I'm pushing a stroller. Right. Or the glow. I remember my friend and I were walking, we were in Riverside park and we had both our, no, no, we were really, really pregnant with our seconds because our kids are really close and our first are about two and a half. And we saw this couple clearly pregnant with their first. They were sitting on a bench. It was like starting at sunset and they were reading their arms around each other. They were reading Ina Mae Gaskin's Guide to Childbirth. And we just laughed. We're like, oh, the romance of the first. Yeah. And we're like sweating and pregnant, pushing a stroller with the second. Totally so embrace that, that totally romance different. of the first because it's gone after that. Yeah. But it was really a beautiful moment that we saw them have. And then we're like, we're so not there anymore. But I think often, you know, the first birth experience can educate the second. And, you know, I know for me, I definitely did things differently, drastically differently my second. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that, you know, you also found that yeah. path too, or, you know, and it's not even that you did anything wrong at all, but sometimes we learn that 
oh, I tried it this way, and I tried it this way. And I think we even do that with raising our kids a second time. We're like, okay, that was a choice, but maybe I'm going to try this choice this time. Different choice. I can't speak to that yet, but I absolutely believe that it's that's the case. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. so glad that you took the time to speak. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we start to wrap things up? No, um, I appreciate getting to to get up on a soapbox for a little while. I think, and there... I appreciated your time doing it because I love the <laughs> sure. soapbox you're on. No, there are there are some some big shifts that we obviously need in this country and. Um, there are great organizations out there who are pushing for them, Choices in Childbirth being one, great documentaries. Um, so I think it's just the, the more you can layer this information out there, women yeah. are going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, information, knowledge is power. So yeah. thank you. No, thanks for what you, you do. Oh, thank you. I love what I do. I feel really fortunate. But I want to also you know, just keep promoting Choice in Childbirth because you guys do an amazing job just educating women and you know, the more we can all band together and because I think we're all in support of the same thing. We want women to feel empowered and come out of their births feeling like it was an amazing experience and then just preach that to other women in a loving way. Yeah. So thank you so much, Claire. So thank you for everyone that listened. If this was something that you enjoyed and you want to tell your friends about, please do. And then you can also go onto iTunes and write a review and subscribe to us. So thanks for that. We're going to continue on our path of getting more and more podcasts out to you. And don't forget, you can catch us on Facebook and Periscope, kind of my new thing, and Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, check out my blog on prenatalyogacenter.com. I have a lot of fun writing them. And Claire actually wrote a blog um, right after her first pregnancy about the cholestasis. So you can read a little more about that as well. So thanks so much and happy birthing to all. Take care. Namaste. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.